Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by the greatest sports writer probably of our times, John Feinstein, who is out with his, I believe, 30th book. He can correct me if it's more than that. And remember, we take your questions each episode. So write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist and The Lost Debate, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. So please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, there's a lot of uh, things to talk about uh, this week. You know, the news for the good guys has been bad. Biden's favorability down Trump territory. Some state surveys actually show the former president would beat him uh, by more than last time or would beat him in places he didn't win. Uh, we know Trump may be facing indictments. Uh, the 2022 map doesn't look good right now. But, but there is good news if voters will realize it. Unemployment claims last month dropped to a 50-year low, a 50-year low. In 1971, James, I was covering Richard Nixon and wage and price controls, and that was before James Carville was James Carville. So that is an incredibly encouraging number. Uh, people aren't out there looking for work because there's work to be had. The economy's humming, and COVID will, and it's going to stay humming. I also think Biden made a very good choice, a critical one, in reappointing Jay Powell as chairman of the Fed. You know, look, maintaining... A stable, strong economy is the first priority of the Fed. And Powell has done that and is committed to doing that. The complaint from the left was that, well, he's not tough enough on bank regulation. Okay, fine. That's a secondary concern. But the Biden then appointed Lael Brainerd as vice chair. She is tough on regulation. He's got two other appointments. So he can create a very rigorously regula regulatory Fed and have a good chairman. So all in all, you know, there's some good things this week. Well, I, I don't say there's good things. I, I think there's tremendous things. And I think part of the problem is is that there is this bias, and this is particularly true among Democratic-leaning people. There's this horrible bias to bad news, and that just perpetrates itself. Mm -hmm. but I have a new rule for Democrats. Anytime someone asks you about a bad news thing, let's just say inflation, you, you counter with three good news things, all right? You don't fall into that trap. And by the way, if inflation is such a, a, a long-term problem, why hasn't the, the bond market responded to it, which is like six times as big as the stock market? And it's always, yeah, but. No, this economy is smoking hot. The vaccine distribution was unbelievable. We have ended the longest war in American history. Joe Biden has run almost a, a year of a completely scandal-free administration absent any significant turnovers. Fuck all of this. The news is not just, but on one hand, the other hand, the news is actually good. And somebody has got to get out there, not, not just the president, but, but people in this cabinet, and people got to start writing op-eds. And when people start this bullshit, you have to pick up the phone and call them. Because if you let it go... It's going to be nothing but gas prices, inflation, subdue Biden's things. And any time that somebody goes on television and talks about what's not in the bill, they have to publicly be rebuked. We don't talk about what's not in legislation. We talk about what's 
in legislation. And I, I am a, I, 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 in the last 48 hours, I would tell you, call myself bullish. It, it been, and I looked at these focus groups. I think Anthony did them for third way. And they did these things in Northern Virginia. The big headline is terrible news to Democrats. No one knows what Biden's done. That's actually good news. Because if they knew what you were done and didn't like you, you'd say, gee, we're in trouble. If they don't know what you've done, then you got to tell them. And ask people, do you really want to go back? Do you really want to go back to March of 2020 or April of, 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 of 2020? By the way, gas prices were approaching zero. And so we have to stop this negativity shit. And when we're hit with it, we got to hit back and hit back ferociously and hit back hard and, and start calling. And I don't know what works or what doesn't work in this environment. If it's cable TV, if it's print media, if it's online, if, if it's anything else, there has to be a massive, aggressive offensive on what's happening. And we got to knock the shit out of the negative people. Because there's way more to be positive about to be negative about right now. Well, there is, but what works is going out and telling people. Uh, yeah, it, it counts a lot more than cable TV or print uh, or anything else. And they got to find good messengers to do it. They uh, have them. Beta Judge has done it, but not a lot of other people are going out and doing that. The message yeah. is there. I don't give a damn whether it's a 1.6 or a 1.7 or uh, a 1.8. Uh, you know, what I want to know about is rural broadband, about pre, about universal pre-K, uh, about uh, bridges that are going to be fixed. Some right. of the stuff's not going to happen for a year or two, but you can still talk about it, and Republicans are claiming credit for it. And I think one of the important things that happened, which I know you were happy about is putting Mitch Landrew in charge of infrastructure. He can talk about it. And the other thing I hope Mitch does, which the Biden, Biden Joe Biden did in 2009, get somebody uh, back in 2009 was a former investigative reporter of mine named Eddie Pound, who is in there just to make sure he's looking for corruption every single day. And uh, what, what you don't want is to have uh, any kind of highly publicized ripoffs because there, there are, as you say, a pension for negative news. But there's a lot to talk about. You just have to do it well. Well, first of all, Biden was brand uh, the thing under Obama. There was zero, I say zero. There was de minimis corruption in that. Mitch Land, there's going to be de minimis corruption in this. There's been de minimis corruption in this White House, in this administration, compared with, look, look at what you went through in the terms of corruption under Trump. I mean, we have got, and by the way, don't. It, well, it's going to be two years before it starts. No, America is building back. America is coming back. Do you really want to go back to the America of, of April 2020? Do you really want to go back to talking about infrastructure and doing nothing about infrastructure? Do you really want to talk about, you know, how bad the war in Afghanistan? Or do you want to get the shit out of there? And, and I just think for one year, the whole – and Mitch Landrieu is uh, – other than Bill Clinton is the best communicator I've ever seen in my life. Jennifer Granholm is superb. Pete Buttigieg is superb. Gina Ramalto is superb. There are other people at administration. Find everybody that's ever run for statewide office or won a statewide office and put them out there and start preaching the gospel of good news. But it's always going to be, I, I did MSNBC last night, and it, it's always going to be the lead with the bad news where the good news is significantly better than the bad news, but 
if for some reason we want to keep it a secret. And when I'm you have unemployment claims at the lowest level in 50 years, 50 it's years. hard to paint that as bad news. It, it is um, very you difficult. Know, one, and I don't, I, I, I don't know if this is good or bad news. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Fred Hyatt had a good column in the Washington Post today. Keep that damn Senate in session. Don't go away for Thanksgiving. Don't work Saturdays, work Sundays. If Ted Cruz and company are going to tie up important nominations, if they're going to tie up the Senate, make them go all night. Deny Cruz the chance to escape to the beaches of Cancun like he did last winter. I really think that Schumer's got to be much tougher and just, uh, you know, round-the-clock sessions. Uh, they only have supposedly uh, 17, if that, more legislative, not even that, legislative days, and they got a lot of goddamn things to do, and uh, I don't need them taking off on, uh, on vacations. Well, they can do what I'm doing, half, half Thanksgiving in the Washington, D.C. area. Well, that's good, and then work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine. I, mean, I, 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 I don't a, feel the weather's kind of nice here. It's a little right, cool, but it's not right, very windy. Right. And it, 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 what the hell? You're in the United States Senate. You know, stay here. James, uh, just you know, before before we go, I think there's you know we have to talk about there's there there were three verdicts this week. Uh, there was the verdict uh, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case in in um, Wisconsin, in which uh, the young man was acquitted of of, of murder. Uh, he came in and. Uh, uh, he came to the town from outside with an assault rifle and uh, gunned people down or gunned a couple people down. Uh, I don't know if the self-defense was uh, – I wasn't there. Uh, the judge seemed to be awful uh, pro-defense on that. But I thought Joe Biden handled it exactly uh, right. He said, hey, it's the verdict. Accept it. Then there was the verdict uh, on Wednesday uh, down in Georgia in which those three men were found guilty. Uh, of of killing a black man who was just jogging the neighborhood. I think that shows that a you know a system has worked. People thought, geez, it's a I, I don't know, is it all white jury or eleven out of twelve were white? But uh, it was a rather quick verdict. It looked to me like an easy case. And then there was the Charlottesville case uh, in which the white supremacists were found liable for the violence they created there. So a mixed picture. There will be some complaints about some of the verdicts, but uh, I give the administration credit for handling it right. Uh, and on balance, more more good than bad. Well, I, first of all, I did Noah Feldman, who's a Harvard law professor. I, I did his podcast, and he asked me about it. And I said, "Prof, tell you the truth, I, I I didn't follow it that closely, uh, but I, I read a paragraph a couple weeks ago about the self defense statute in Wisconsin. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is going to be a tough nut for the prosecution, and." Yeah, I don't know if it's a judge or, or this or that, but generally when juries are read an instruction, they follow it to the nth degree. And I, 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 I can't tell you exactly what the self-defense statute says in Wisconsin, but as I recall reading it, it's not up to the defendant to prove self-defense. It's up to the state to overcome the idea that it's almost a presumption of self-defense, which is statutorily a, a, a very difficult thing to do. And that's the same thing you have a lot of these stand-your-ground laws that as opposed to the individual thing of what this guy did or didn't do. I, I really will, I'm not ignorant about it, but I'm, I'm not informed enough to make, to really talk about it. But we got to look at some of these statutes that almost encourage violence but 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 i i i i can't criticize a jury that i wouldn't sit there and i don't know and i don't know what the instructions were or anything like that and i just have to presume as joe biden does that juries operate in the best they can as opposed to his predecessor he did exactly what a president uh should 
should have done. James, uh, before we leave this segment, it's Thanksgiving week. We want to wish all of our listeners uh, a very, very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I think we ought to pay special thanks to all those healthcare workers out there who for, what, 19, hmm. 20 months now have, uh, have been on the front line. Some of them working 24-7. It's just been extraordinary. So happy Thanksgiving to all those. And I would just say for us, James, I think we ought to say, uh, you know, thanks to Simon Seedy, Vanessa Taub, Dan Max, and Mike Leach, who every week get two clutches, right. namely you and me, on the air. <laughs> that, well, we seem to be getting to it. And yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I, I love Thanksgiving. I don't, I don't much like turkey and dressing and stuffing, but I like Thanksgiving like I did, like drinking during the day. I do too. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, James, now that it's the holiday season, it's time to catch up on all the books you've been waiting to read. And if you're like us, you know this is the time to take your game to the next level. That's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks. You can digest them in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or a business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into politics with titles like Fear by Bob Woodward or The Soul of America by John Meacham. They blink thousands of titles, 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, and we know you all do, they blink those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. James, this is yours, baby. Yeah, it, it, it is, and they're very good about sending you, like, updates and everything. And, and I, I like to, I got, I got to read the procrastination thing because I used, I go through life with the motto, if God wanted you to do it today, he would make it tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah Procrastinate exactly. a lot oh. of things. But they, they, Particularly the, the holiday the, season. The variety <laughs> of subjects that they cover. And again, I, I, I want to get one up on the show one time and see how they digest this. Do they, like, pay college professors to do this and they have an algorithm. I mean, it's utterly genius. How do you do this? Yeah. It's just got kind of an interesting thing. And I, I don't know if it's a combination of expertise and technology or something, but it, when I, I, you know, when I was at, this is a long time ago in law school, they had these guys who would write these law summaries because all the law professors hated them and the law students loved them. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, that's good. Let's get one of them on because right now Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash War Room to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash War Room, or look for the link in our show notes. And you know something, James Carville, there's no more prolific or insightful sports writer than John Feinstein. He's written his 44th and most important book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, about race and sports. John, welcome to the program, and tell us about the inspiration for this book. Well, Al, James, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me back. Uh, the inspiration for this book really came, although I thought about writing about race before that, during the anthem protests in 2017. I was working on a, uh, a book on the NFL, so I was in a, a stadium every Sunday, 
And every Sunday I saw the same thing. I saw mostly black players kneeling, uh, inspired the year before by Colin Kaepernick. And I saw mostly white fans booing them. Uh, usually, uh, based on what I read and heard and, and tweets I got, because they didn't understand why the black players were kneeling and, and what the issues really were. And of course, that was helped along by President Trump's rant about firing all the SOBs who were kneeling and things like that. And I went to see John Thompson, who, as you know, I had a very long and somewhat complicated relationship with during my career, but we'd become friends. And I went to see John and I said, I want to write a book about race and sports. I know it's a massive issue. I don't know where to begin. And he looked at me and he said, you might as well try to explain the Holy Trinity. And then he pointed a finger at me and said, which is why you need to do it. So from that point forward, I knew I wanted to do a book like this. I didn't know exactly where to start until Lamar Jackson uh, was overlooked by 31 NFL teams in the 2018 draft and was told before the draft that he should change positions, become a wide receiver, become a receiver. And to me, this smacked to the 60s and 70s when uh, people insisted that blacks weren't smart enough to play quarterback. Of course, we all know much better than that now. Well, but, let, but, but let's stay with that, John, because okay. that, that, there's such good stuff in your book about that. And the unstated reason, the bigoted unstated reason was, well, they're not smart enough. Right. Uh, and so they weren't given a chance. But tell us, and it was a hard slog. Tell us about Melvin Briscoe. Um, Marlon Briscoe. Marlon, I'm sorry, Marlon. Marlon Briscoe. Briscoe was the first quarterback to play the position in professional sports. He played for the Denver Broncos in 1968 uh, in the old AFL. This was after the merger had been agreed to, but the leagues had not yet officially merged. And he, because of injuries, even though he had been uh, drafted in the 14th round as a defensive back, he played quarterback for four years in college. Uh, out of desperation, Lou Saban, no relation to Nick, uh, played him at quarterback. And he played 11 games uh, and set all sorts of rookie records that stood in Denver until John Elway came along. Running up for rookie of the year. Yeah, he was second in the rookie of the year voting. And then he was informed during the offseason that he was no longer a quarterback. They had signed one quarterback from Canada, had drafted another. He was not even invited to the preseason quarterback meetings uh, that, that Lou Saban held, and he asked for his release. And Saban delayed his release for reasons still unexplained, and in those days you could do that kind of thing. And when he was finally signed with the Buffalo Bills, it was as a, a wide receiver. And he had a very good career as a receiver, played on two Super Bowl champion teams in Miami, but never played quarterback again, even though he had shown – that he could play the position when he got the chance in 1968. And, and as you said a minute ago, we thought we made so much progress. Uh, uh, and I mean, if you look at the NFL today, I don't know, you're an expert. You, you take the top seven or eight quarterbacks, over half of them are black and almost all the young, really right. great uh, NFL quarterbacks are black. But you mentioned Lamar Jackson and, and, and it, it, it took to the, the last pick, I think you said you wrote the in, the, first man, in, right. the, in that draft. And, and, and they happen to have a black general manager. And then the next year, he was a unanimous MVP. There have been two unanimous MVPs in the history of the NFL. Al, one was Tom Brady and one was Lamar Jackson. And as I said, coming out of, out of Louisville, he'd won the Heisman Trophy as a sophomore, finished third in the voting as a junior. Um, 
he was told by all the pro teams and all the, the so-called experts on television said, oh, no, no, your skill set is to be a receiver or a running back. And he said, no, I'm a quarterback. He refused to run the 40 at the combine because he knew they would, in effect, use his speed against him in insisting he switch positions. And there were four white quarterbacks drafted in the top 10 uh, with mixed results so far in their careers. Uh, none of them have come close to being as good as Lamar Jackson, who went with the 32nd and final pick of the draft of the first round. And as you said, only because Ozzie Newsom, who was the first black general manager in the history of the NFL, took him. And he became the starter midway through the season. The, the, the Ravens had a very good quarterback at the time, Joe Flacco. But in his first full year as a starter, he was a unanimous MVP. And, and now he's one of those young quarterbacks, along with Kyler Murray and, of course, Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott, who are all considered stars, all of whom probably would not have been given a chance to play quarterback 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Wow. You know, we, we, we're going to talk about a lot of basketball, too. But but just to stay on football for one, before I turn it over to James, I think 70 percent of the pro football players are black. But right, only right. only three coaches, uh, I think, and or maybe uh, with, with the change right, in, right. In, in, in Vegas, and only two uh, general managers. Why such slow progress at that level? Yeah, well, I, I, guys like Mike Tomlin and Tony Dungy, um, Lovey Smith, who, of course, was the first black to coach a team into the Super Bowl. He beat Tony who, Dungy, who was his mentor, by about three hours since they were they both won championship games on the same day. But they all believe that Roger Goodell really is embarrassed by this. And interestingly, Goodell was the only commissioner, major commissioner, who refused to speak to me for this book. Um, and the problem is the owners are the ones with the final set. The owners are the ones who ultimately make the hires of coaches and general managers. Uh, and, and it's an old white man's club. You know, why do you think Dan Snyder hasn't been kicked out? It's an old white man's club. And when, when these guys look at coaches, they want someone who looks like Sean McVay more than they want someone who looks like Mike Tomlin. James. So, John, he's of course one of my favorite athletes because given the intersection of our lives, he's in Baton Rouge guys, exactly, but close enough, is Doug Williams. And, right. and Doug plays a, a prominent part in your book. He wrote the, the, the introduction, and I'm sure that you, you covered him in, in Washington, tell us a little bit about Doug's experience. Because I think he was the first black to win a quarterback to win a Super Bowl. He, he was. He he was James in 1988. He was the first black to start a Super Bowl and and won the game. Was the MVP through four touchdown passes and threw for 340 yards in that game uh, against the Denver Broncos. Washington won 42 to 10. Um, Doug, as you said, grew up in Louisiana, Zachary. Uh, I'm sure you've so been. So it's, it's like growing up in geographically to equivalent of growing up in Bethesda. Right. In, right. right north of town. And, and, uh, and uh, became a quarterback in high school uh, and uh, was recruited by a number of Big Ten schools, but nobody would promise him that he could play quarterback. So ultimately, he went to Grambling, where the quarterback had to be black because the team and the school were entirely black, played to the great Eddie Robinson, of course. And one of the heroes of the Doug Williams story is Joe Gibbs, who was an assistant coach in Tampa at the time and came and scouted Doug and actually sat in on, on Doug's student teaching classes. He, he was getting his degree in education 
uh, and really got to know him and encouraged John McKay, who'd had a great deal of success as a coach at Southern California with black quarterbacks, to draft him in the first round. And Doug became the first uh, black quarterback drafted in the first round, 17th pick overall. Eventually became the starter in Tampa Bay, took them to the playoffs three times in four years. At the end of that of his fifth season, he didn't start much his first year, excuse me, because he was hurt. He was the 54th highest paid quarterback in the NFL, even though he was a starter, uh, even though he led his team to the playoffs three times, he was being paid less than his backup, Jimmy Ray. And this was before full-fledged free agency. And when he went in and asked for a raise to uh, $600,000 a year, he'd been making three fifty. dollars uh, He was told, you, we'll give you three seventy-five dollars with bonuses going to four hundred. dollars And so he walked away. Uh, He had an infant child. His wife, his first wife had just died of brain cancer. And he went back home to Zachary and taught as a substitute teacher for $50 an hour. And when the USFL came into existence, the owner of the Oklahoma Outlaws offered him a chance to play. Uh, He still loved football. He was only 28 years old. So he went back, played for the Outlaws for two years. The league folded. And then Joe Gibbs stepped in again and said, do you think you can come here and deal with being a backup? Jay Schrader, I'm sure you guys both remember him, was the starter. And Doug went back to Washington, eventually beat Schrader out for the job, and quarterbacked uh, Washington to the Super Bowl victory. And still works for the team, uh, was was sort of the pseudo-general manager for a couple of years, never got the title, uh, but he was in charge of player personnel until Dan Snyder hired Ron Rivera, And then Doug was kind of shoved to the side. He still has a job, but he's basically kind of the chairman of alumni uh, functions or whatever. Terry was the coach at Washington for a few games, wasn't he? Who was? Terry Rubisky. Yes, he was the interim coach for, I think, the last three games of one season. So I'll I'll tell you a story because I I like stories. He was from Edgar, Louisiana, which was right on the Mississippi River. LSU were down to recruiting. And his, his dad, his family were very, he was like, he was like a school principal. He was a very, you know, straight guy. And they're in the living room, and they said, Mr. Rubisky, if Terry signs at LSU, we want you to know he'll be on the levy board. And Mr. Rubisky, being a, a, a kind of gentleman, I was guy, said, well, I tell you the truth, I, I don't know very much about levies. I don't think I'm qualified. <laughs> and the chairman of the LSU board said, come out on your front porch. And he said, now look across the road, where do you see a levy? He said, good. If that goddamn thing ever blows up, this is a phone number. You call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one more quick story that involves Terry Rubisky, because he and Doug Williams uh, were both in high school together. Um, and when uh, Terry was, I think, a sophomore, he was already the same size he was when he played at LSU. I mean, 6'2", oh. like 215. Doug hadn't grown yet, and he was playing uh, linebacker. And he tried to tackle Terry Rubisky, and he, Terry just ran right through him. And he went over to the sideline and said to his brother, who was an assistant coach, I'm just playing offense from now on. And that was sort of what launched his career as just the quarterback. Led to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just I go through the book. I, I, it, 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 I just cough it. I don't read it. I, you know, so much of the stuff – that that it, it it just really brings back, but it, it strikes me that there are some figures that that stand out more than others, 
And I went to that Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville. And then I just, you know, I knew everything about Ali. And obviously grown up and, you know, went to, but man, was he ever an influential figure? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, oh, it, it, hugely it, influential because it, back in the 60s, when you weren't supposed to take on the establishment, especially if you were black, he did. And he ended up winning the Supreme Court case. And there have been uh, very good documentaries about it. Yeah. Uh, but but yes, he, he was a hugely influential uh, figure. And so were John Smith, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, of course, with their protests at the 68 Olympics. And I, I was fortunate enough, obviously, I couldn't talk to Muhammad Ali, but I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to both Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And guys, it took close to 50 years for people to realize, uh, most people to realize how courageous they right. were. And Brent Musburger, who I'm sure you're familiar with, was then a columnist for the Chicago American and wrote a column calling them black-skinned stormtroopers because of their raised fists on the platform. And the story of what happened to Peter Norman, who was the third guy on that platform, an Australian, and how he was treated back in Australia because he wore a pin showing his support for Smith and Carlos is in some ways more remarkable and sad than the stories of John, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. So I, I, I read every word about that. And when I asked Al, we like to throw sports trivia questions each other about four or five years ago. I said, who was the third guy on the podium? And Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and he got it right, and it pissed me off. You <laughs> 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 are very eloquently about the third guy on that podium and the, the shit that he went through. Yes. It, but yeah. Smith and Carlos, Smith kind of loved Peter Norman, didn't he? I mean, he would have respected what he did. Well, just to show you how much, uh, James, when, when uh, Peter Norman died of cancer in 2006, both John Carlos and Tommy Smith flew to Australia. They both eulogized him at the funeral, and they were pallbearers. Uh, and, and they both said they loved Peter Norman for the courage he showed specifically that night in Mexico City. And interestingly, San Jose State, which is where both John and Tommy went to college, built a statue of the two of them on the podium with their fists raised. Tommy's right fist, John's left fist, because John forgot his gloves that night. So Tommy loaned him his left glove. But Peter Norman flew up to uh, San Jose when the statue was unveiled, and they offered to put him in, on the statue on the second place podium and he said no leave it empty so that people can stand come there and stand on the podium and know what it felt like that night to be there with tommy and john and it just shows you what an extraordinary guy he was and six years after he died to show you how poorly he was treated the australian parliament issued a written formal apology posthumously to him and to his family for the way he was treated in in australia John, you write that NBA and Adam Silver are probably the most in, are the most enlightened. It is a predominantly black sport as is football. Why is the NBA better? I think it has to do with the leadership uh, in the league. I think it goes back to David Stern, uh, who went out of his way as commissioner to bring in a black owner of the then Charlotte Bobcats, uh, Bob Johnson. Uh, and Bob Johnson hired Ed Tapscott uh, as the first black CEO of an NBA team. Uh, and they, they have been very, David Stern and now Adam Silver have been very aggressive about, excuse me, making it clear that intolerance won't be accepted. 
Adam Silver actually kicked the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers out of the league after he was caught on a recording making blatantly racist comments, um, even though he didn't have the authority to do so, technically, according to the NBA bylaws. Uh, Donald Sterling that was the owner of the Clippers, and he said, you're banned. And technically, he had to wait for the board of governors to do that, but he didn't. And one of the reasons he didn't, it was in the middle of a playoff series, and he realized there was a good chance Doc Rivers was coaching the Clippers at the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he realized there was a good chance there'd be a boycott. And he avoided the boycott. And NBA players as a group have been more outspoken uh, than, than any group of athletes uh, in the world. Others have been, of course. Um, but I, I think it goes back to the leadership of the league. And again, uh, Mike Tomlin and Tony Dungy will defend Roger Goodell by saying that there's only so much he can do. Well, David Stern and Adam Silver have done more than any other commissioner uh, in any sport. You know, you mentioned Doc Rivers. And one of the things that really compelling um, sections of your book, you take, the, you know, these very successful and affluent Black coaches or general managers, Doc Rivers, uh, Ed Tapscott, they all talk, they all say that when they're driving home in a nice car, there's a real possibility they'll be stopped by police. They call it DWB. Tell us about that. Yeah, driving while black. And uh, I interviewed guys about 100 black people in sports uh, in my reporting. I did not find one who had not had at least one incident. Many had had multiple incidents, but they, they, all, they all have vivid memories of it. They tell specific stories about uh, times when they were pulled over. When Ed Tapscott was general manager of the Knicks, uh, he had an apartment in Riverdale. And he said at least twice a month, driving home from Madison Square Garden after a game, he would be pulled over for DWB, driving all black. And the first question, they all said they got was, where did you get this car? In other words, you're black. How can you be driving such a nice car? Uh, and the, the funniest story uh, of all of them uh, was from Cullen Jones, the Olympic swimmer, who told me he was stopped by a cop while walking his dog. And, and the cop said to him, where did you get this dog? And he said, it's my dog. Yeah, what kind of dog is it? And he cross-examined him for several minutes before finally being convinced that Cullen hadn't somehow stolen the dog. And I said to him, well, congratulations, because you're the first person I've talked to who told me a story about WDWB, walking dog while black. <laughs> they all, they, they, Steve Kerr made a great point. He said, when you and I go out, when we're driving, if we get pulled over, we're not happy. We're nervous. We probably did something wrong, speeding, running a light, whatever. We're annoyed if we're gonna, that we might get a ticket, but we're not afraid we're going to die. We're not afraid we're going to die. And that's something that a lot of black people deal with that, that white people simply don't. You know, we, you and I have talked about John Thompson, uh, who passed away in August. Uh, and uh, you, you had uh, a long relationship with him and ended up a, a good friend. Tell us a little bit more about the importance of John Thompson to blacks and, uh, and American sports. Well, I just start with the fact that John was the first uh, college basketball coach at Georgetown uh, to take a team to the final four. He went three times in four years, 82, 84, 85. Um, and he was asked in 82 at the Friday press conference before the final four, uh, it, how he felt about being the first black coach. 
um, to make it to the final four. And in typical John fashion, he said, I resent the hell out of that question because it implies that I'm the first black coach capable of doing this. And I'm not. There were lots of great black coaches before me, John McClendon, Big House Gaines, guys who were mentors to him. Um, and you're implying that I'm the first one capable of, of doing this. And I'm not. And what made John special, besides being a great coach, just look at his record, uh, was that he, he was outspoken on issues all the time. Uh, he angered people frequently. He was called a racist, as you know, um, because at times he had an all-black team. And I, sa- I asked him about that one time, and he said, he said, John, I'm a black coach. Most of the best players are black. Why would I not take advantage of the advantage I have going into a black home to recruit very good players? That doesn't mean I won't recruit white players. He did, as you know. Um, but the likelihood is I'm going to end up with a lot of black players. Now, most of the top teams are virtually all black and nobody objects to it. And, and, and so, and he spoke out on proposition 42 as did John Chaney and George Raveling and, and Nolan Richardson, but he was the leader because he was the most secure and he could afford to walk off the court before a game and know that he wasn't going to get fired for doing so. Uh, He has a huge influence on me. Because to his credit, I was very critical of him, as you know. You wrote about it once. I did. Uh, at, 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 at times, because he was so secretive about his, his players. And so we fought a lot about that. But he, he said to me, when Georgetown people accused me of being racist for criticizing him, he said, I know you're, when you criticize me, it's not racist. It's just because you and I are in natural adversarial positions. He said, I don't like you, but I respect you. And as we got older, I always respected him. I think we came to like one another. And that's why he was the person I went to when I first thought I wanted to do this book. A, because he'd become a mentor and B, because he's one of the smartest guys I ever knew. That's a wonderful story. His, his closest coaching colleague, of course, was Dean Smith, who was, yes. uh, was, 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 you know, was white. Just a quick question before I turn it back to James. Uh, baseball. Jackie Robinson, you know, was famously in 1947, broke the color bar um, uh, before uh, basketball did. But the number of blacks in baseball has steadily been decreasing. Is that because of racism or is it because it just doesn't have as much interest to young blacks? It's a a combination of things, Al. Uh, Baseball is is no longer the cool sport among kids in general. Uh, If you can play basketball, uh, especially in, in, in the black communities where you, you're going to play basketball uh, because Michael Jordan is, is still the biggest hero uh, among kids, even though he hasn't played for what, almost 20 years now. Um, but now it's LeBron James, of course. But uh, so it's partly that, but it's also because again, look at numbers. There are two black managers total in major yep. league baseball right now. A Willie Randolph, who I talked to for this book, was a successful manager with the Mets. You know how baseball recycles managers. Guys get second, third, fourth, fifth uh, jobs. Jeff Torborg, really good guy, got five jobs as a major league manager without ever winning a division title. Willie Randolph almost got the Mets to the World Series. We all know how hard it is for the Mets to get to the World Series. Took over a team that won 71 games and two years later won 97. Never got a second chance. As, yep. as a manager, in spite of that successful record. And, as, oh, I think it is a combination of, of, of kids looking 
at baseball and saying, ah, that's not the sport I really want to play. But also knowing, again, that basketball and to a lesser degree football, because as far as playing is concerned, sports is a meritocracy, are, are sports they would rather play. James? So if you were kind of, I guess, a white person who's kind of racially progressive sports fan, your motto was three at home, four on the road, five when you're behind. <laughs> Do you understand that within the context? Yeah, no, exactly. That, that's, that's the way it used to be. It used to be the quota was three, and then it was Red Auerbach who finally broke that when he started five, five black players in Boston. And Red never wanted credit, quote-unquote, you know, for, for breaking that, that quota. He said, you know why I started five black players? Because that was my best chance to win. I used to instinctively pull for the team with the most black players. Mm-hmm. I don't let him think about it. Yeah, I, mean, I pull for I black coaches. Son, huh? I pull for black coaches, especially after doing this. Book. I, I, I think I do too. I, I don't know if I was pulling for Dave Roberts, but uh, that that's a stretch. But in general, I, 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 do. I was. I no longer. You know, the, the Lombardi's great thing is how many blacks you have on the Packers, and he said, "I don't know. I never counted," which is kind of revolutionary for that time. Right. Right. Um, so, I'm going to let it go. One of the problems that I'm told by smart people at baseball has, if, if you're 14 years old and you're a really good athlete, you will never see a pitch. Okay? okay. If you're a basketball player, you're going to get the ball. You're going to shoot it. If you're a good football player, they're going to, you're going to throw the pass. All right? You're going to be able to make the tackle. If you're a really dominant 14-year-old baseball player, the girls you never see you on run. Right. They're just walking. Right. right. It actually makes, does that make some intuitive sense to you as to why they choose these other sports? I don't know if that's why, James. I don't know if kids yeah. think in that right. context, but I, I, I do think that, you know, it's so much easier to set up a basketball game. You can play one on one, you can shoot by yourself. Uh, you know, many really good players become better by playing alone. Uh, football, of course, requires more players, but everybody still thinks football is cool in spite of all we know now about concussions and things like that. I just don't think baseball is considered cool anymore. If you look at the demographics of who watches baseball, it's old guys like us. Um, it's not younger, younger people, gen- generally speaking. Uh, I also think baseball has really hurt itself by playing the World Series game so late at night. And, you know, when I was a kid, I watched the, the World Series. I would run home from school to watch the World Series. But, and, and the games took two, two and a half hours max. Now, postseason baseball starts at 8.30 at night and ends after midnight. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 it's in the Nationals, I had to struggle to stay up. Yeah, I did, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. But, but um, it, it, the truth is that, that, that baseball – uh, in general, isn't as popular as it used to be. I mean, it was the national pastime. Football is the national pastime now. There, there isn't any doubt about it. And basketball is probably second, and based on TV ratings and, and other things. I think the World Series does look better than the NBA Finals. But it, it well, it, it depends on the matchup. And the NBA Finals start too late, too, by the way. They start after 9 o'clock. I, and I have argued with people, and they claim that, that – you know, if you live in California, there's a whole argument. I know. I, I, I've had the same. I, 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 I'll turn it back down. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed having you on the show. What an important book that, that that you have written. And I've lived through most of this, and I found out – I thought I knew a lot. I found out actually how, how little I do know, and you really amplified a, a lot of stories. And, and congratulations for 
you know, another terrific book. Well, thank you, James. I, well, I, I, I agree. I a lot too. And John, before we go, you and I have been good friends for years. We, we enjoy sometimes ribbing each other. Uh, and so I can't let you go without noting that in the book, you note correctly that my alma mater, Wake Forest, several times picked some rather mediocre basketball coaches while passing on Clarence Big House Gaines of Winston-Salem State. When I was a senior in college, John, I went to see Winston-Salem State play, one of Big House's teams. He had a fairly decent guard named Earl the Pearl Monroe. Yeah, he was Um, pretty good. And Wake Forest did pass on that. But I would point out that we did hire a black basketball coach later, didn't turn out as well as it should have, had a black football coach. Now, has Duke University ever had a black basketball or football coach? No, they have not. And I, 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 the only defense I will give you on the basketball side is that Duke has had the same coach for 42 years. That's true. So yeah. they, haven't, they haven't hired anybody since 1980. And I think you would agree that Tom Butters hired a pretty good coach uh, back in 1980. Best hire of all times. But Mike Krzyzewski's retiring. He's going to be replaced by John Shire. I love John Shire. I wish they'd hired Tommy Amaker. Uh, but yeah. Tommy didn't really want to leave Harvard. He loves it at Harvard. His wife teaches there. They did talk to him about the job, but I would have loved to have seen Tommy Amaker get the job. Now, David Cutcliffe is retiring as football coach. They have a Duke now has a black female athletic director. Uh, it is time, uh, past yeah. time, uh, because Duke has had plenty of football coaches in the last 20, 25 years, and it is past time to go out and, and hire a black coach. And, and what nothing angers me more, Al, in general, I'm not just talking about Duke, but nothing angers me more than when people say, well, there aren't enough qualified candidates. There are yeah. more than enough qualified candidates in every sport. It's just a matter of getting past the notion that the guy you're hiring has to look like you. And that's why Eric Bieniemy has had 11 interviews, even though he's run the best offense in, in pro football in Kansas City the last three years, and he's still not a head coach. You know, I'll tell you one quick story. Sorry? There was a really terrific president of Wake Forest. He died, uh, Tom Hearn. Yeah, I knew Tom Hearn well. Tom Hearn called me in 1993, I think it was. I was in the board. He said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, what's that? He said um, uh, they were going to replace the football coach. He said, we're going to have a black coach. And I said, well, you know, I said, what's the athletic director say? He said, I said, we're going to have a black coach. <laughs> and they did. And, they did. Uh, and, and Jim Caldwell, Jim Caldwell was a class act. He didn't have a great record at Wake Forest. But as you know, he went on to coach in the Super Bowl. And, and uh, he's another guy I talked to for this book. He coached in Detroit. I'll wrap up with this. I know you guys got to go. But he coached in Detroit for four years. He uh, had winning records three of those four years. He had the best four-year record the Lions had in 70 years. 36 and 28 regular season, and they fired him. And they brought in, brought in Matt, Matt Patricia, who's gotten, who was fired, and now they have another coach, and they're 0-8-1. So how has that worked out for them? I think I, think I checked their 14-32 and 32 since Jim Caldwell left. I, I think you're so exactly right. I got to tell you something, everybody out there. You know, John Feinstein, raise a fist, take a knee, race in the illusion of progress in modern sports, uh, even those of us who thought we were great sports aficionados, we knew a lot. Boy, you learned so much from this. And we have made a lot of progress, but there's been a lot of pain. And there's a lot more to go. And, John, you have really captured it. Congratulations. Well, thanks, Al. You said you said that that that, that perfectly. And I appreciate you guys having me on. And, and I appreciate you guys reading the book because that means a lot to me, too. And 
so thank you and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Even happy though Thanksgiving to you. Thanksgiving. Hey, every election makes it clear our country is more politically divided than ever. And you probably feel forced to pick a side when you turn on the news, even if it doesn't represent what you believe. That's why you should check out the Lost Debate podcast and YouTube show where they know people don't fit neatly into two groups and believe the media should reflect that. The Lost Debate is hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former campaign staffer for Obama who also fought alongside Republicans on charter schools and also Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who once hosted a Fox News radio show. On the Lost Debate, they're calling out both the right and left, a.k.a. the conspiracy-obsessed authoritarian personality cult, and the sanctimonious group of wannabe postmodern sociology professors. James, you know something about that group. Yeah, I, and I, I think that they, they have, they, we have these authoritarian criminals and we have a, a bunch of well-meaning, naive sociology professors. Right? They're not the same thing. <laughs> okay? They're not. One, one are, are, are criminals with, with no respect for the law who are willing to use anything at their disposable, whatever they have to them. And on the other hand, you, you got a bunch of goofy people in a faculty seminar. All right? They're, they're not... In, but I think it's important because what intrigues me, and I would ask these folks that do this show, is why do we pay more for some, like, you know, what, what I would say is like well-meaning, decent, somewhat naive people that, that, that they pay for the people that stormed the Capitol? I mean, you can say what you want. I mean, these are not bad people. I, I disagree with them, and I think they engaged in a lot of pursuits that are not just useless but are, are actually massively counterproductive but i couldn't imagine Ilion omar or ayanna presley storming the capitol no. or beating a, a, a policeman with the butt of a flagpole it, it, it sounds really interesting well we all should the lost debate is for anyone who has lost trust in our polarizing partisan world it looks at the relevant facts to go beyond the culture war happening between progressives and conservatives, shares news, ideas, and trends that are being overlooked. It also brings people together to empathize with and challenge each other in good faith. So join the conversation. Subscribe to The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop twice a week. Just search for The Lost Debate on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, James, now for our listener questions. The first one is from Rosemont, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's, my, that's my neck of the woods. That's the main line. That's where I grew up. It used to be a heavily Republican area. It no longer is. But Rob from Rosemont asked, that, you know, the Democrats focus on Main Street issues and don't stop reminding uh, America of the place and importance of government until the approval numbers rise. Focus on bridges, not pronouns. Uh, which is, I think is a good point. You've been making that. And then he asked, what are your three top Senate races in, in 22, and what do the Democrats need to win them? Oh, well, thank you for the question. Is, is that Montgomery or Delaware? I think Rosemont is in Montgomery. I'm about 90% oh, okay. sure uh, it is. Uh, okay. Uh, well, first of all, he's exactly right. 
no, no. And I, I think that we just ought to, I think we had our say on this, and we had the back and forth, and I think the pronoun people know they have to cool their jets. And I think that they will, and I think the worst thing we can do is to blow it up more as an issue. But hopefully everybody understands that we talk about the bridge that connects people, not the pronoun they use when they cross the bridge. Yep. All right. Yep. That, that, that's a, How about the top three to, Senate races? Right. In the top three Senate races. Well, uh, from one vantage point is Georgia, New Hampshire, Arizona, maybe even Nevada. Those are must-holes. All right. Then you go to opportunity seats. Well, there you're looking at North Carolina. Uh, you're certainly looking at Pennsylvania. I think you, you're potentially looking at Florida. Pretty good. Uh, I, I don't think if, if, if we're smart that we're out at a hunt in Ohio because they have some disastrous primaries in front of them. I mean, really disastrous primaries in front of them. Uh, I'm probably forgetting somewhere that should be on my list, but the, 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 I, I mean, I Wisconsin. think Wisconsin, yeah, Wisconsin, huge. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Wisconsin's yeah. huge. Yeah, uh, you know, I think yeah, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Ohio are yeah. big potentials, but you got to worry about Georgia, New Hampshire, Arizona, and Nevada. I, I, I but all in all, it, it's it's not if we if we get a little. We get a little better. We got a shot in all these places. Yeah. Rob, if I had to, I agree with everything James just said. If I had to pick three, it would be Georgia uh, because, you know, you got to hold that. And that hasn't been a purple state until recently. Uh, I'd say North Carolina. I want to acknowledge that my son's working for Sherry Beasley, a candidate down there. And, and uh, Pennsylvania, if the Democrats win those three, they're going to keep control of the Senate. Uh, and uh, but, you know. I think things right now have a long way to go, as they say. Shane in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and actually asked the same question as I think Zella did from Los Angeles about our guest last week. Danny, he says, Dan Crenshaw's take on critical race vaccines and gerrymandering, they were empty, sometimes flat out stupid. This is Shane. And his suggestion the shape of a congressional district demonstrates nothing is an easy argument to make when you're drawing the shapes. So my question is simple. How did you keep down your lunch while talking with that bag of bullshit? Well, Shane, I, I think Dan Crenshaw's a smart guy. I'm glad we have guests like that on. We had Liz Cheney on earlier. She's a quite different kind of Republican these days. Uh, and I think it's good to hear that point of view. Uh, I didn't agree with much of it. I thought he was wrong on a couple things, just flat out wrong. I mean, Eddie Gallagher was convicted, not a murderer, but he was convicted. Then he was pardoned. And I thought his, his answer on vaccines was a little bit confusing. He said, well, we sh it's a matter of freedom, so we shouldn't make people get, vac get vaccinated. And then when I asked about polio or mumps, he said, well, that's been around for a while, so that's okay. Well, if it's a matter of freedom, you ought to be able to say, my kid's not going to get a mumps or polio vaccine, so he can't go to school. But I, I'm, I'm glad we had him on. If he wants to come back, I'd love to have him back. I hope we had a civil discourse. Uh, and I think it's healthy to have people like that on from time to time, James. Uh, I have a little bit of a different take. But first of all, th thank you. And one of the things that we didn't do, I know, I know I didn't, I don't think he did either, we didn't challenge him because I actually thought he was making a fool of himself. And, you know, when you're supposed to, like, jump in someone's face and tell him how the statistics are wrong. I knew he was wrong about Eddie Gallagher. I didn't say anything because we got a we're, we're more fortunate than the average people. I, th I thought his his answer on 
vaccines was was empty. And I'm I'm being generous here, all right. And, and I well, he seemed to I appreciate the fact he wanted to come on the show, uh, but I I I didn't feel any need at all to challenge him because I know our audience, I know the people that listen to this podcast, and they can spot emptiness as fast as they can spot phoniness, and we try not yeah. to give them either. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I think Liz Cheney had a lot to say. I could glad to have, we had Jim Langford on, but I just yeah. didn't, I didn't think he was a bad guy. I'm not mad at him or anything. I, I, just one of these guys that like tries to, and, and maybe he's confined by the, what it takes to be a, a Republican in Texas these days. But I, I think that our listening, the question was just spot on. Yep. Um, Paul in Halifax, Canada, says he Ooh. often sees Republicans join more left-leaning media outlets like your guest last week and Chris Christie on Real Time with Bill Maher. Why do we rarely see Democrats doing the same on the other side? In this polarized environment, isn't it good to join those outlets and uh, uh, convey your message to them? Well, I, first of all, I've been to Halifax, and the, the Halifax explosion, some ship, like blew up in the Halifax Harbor, you know, maybe it was during World War One. I, I have to look it up. It it is one of the, it was an unbelievable event in history, and it's a uh, that the, the harbor there is, is it's like on a hill. It's one. Of, it's really a, a very gorgeous place. I, I've only been there once or twice, but it, it really sticks uh, in my mind. The, what was the question? I was thinking about Halifax. The question, the question was, how come Republicans uh, uh, go on left-leaning shows and Democrats so, so don't I don't think I, I think people like us are more than happy to have them. I, I don't think Mark Levin or Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram is in any way, shape, or form what, you know, for a while they used to have a panel with a Democrat, but they don't even do that anymore. They don't even like go, go through the fakery of trying to listen to the other side. And I, I would be, I, I was on Fox for most of the year in 2014. It, I, I wouldn't have any problem going on there. I don't think most Democrats would either. But they would have a problem with us being on there because they wouldn't, we wouldn't let them get away with their bullshit. So I, I agree with you. I just don't think they want, they want to hear a, another side to argument. The one exception for Fox, uh, and it's really it's a minuscule uh, amount of time, is Juan Williams, who I think I think does a good job, and uh, he's always outnumbered and outshouted. Right, uh, John in Chicago, Illinois, uh, talking about the Rittenhouse verdict. He says, "Do you think the Republicans will use Kyle Rittenhouse to campaign against the Democrats?" And will that work from? Of course they will use. They'll they'll do anything they, they can. Trump's already had him down to Mar-a-Lago. And uh, but no, I don't think it'll work. I don't think Kyle Rittenhouse is gonna become a folk hero to people around the country. But uh yeah, sure they'll do it. So so look, Kyle Rittenhouse won't but this crime shit is is an issue and it has to be dealt with forthrightly and up front. I mean, eighty people with a grab and go incident at a high-end department store in Walnut Creek, California. I mean, this this is not working. And people have got to start turning these people in. All right? The, the, the people that know who did this, they got to start turning people in. And there's no excuse for this kind of bullshit. None. 
a lot of people lead a life of challenges, have, have, have you know, economic issues, have, you know, structural disadvantages in going through life, and they're not criminals. They're not. I won't walk around with them all the time. And criminality is a choice in life. And unfortunately, more and more people are making this choice. And we don't need to be, you know, if you just do, you can do causation, correlation, but you can't argue with the correlation of the crime bill and the drop in the crime rate. Yeah. But of course, we, because we're Democrats, yeah, but on the other hand, you can't say that because of this or that. Well, it's okay. Go look at the chart. But, but, and it's going to be an issue. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal, April. It is not going to go away. And the issue is not going to be Kyle Rittenhouse. The issue is going to be, do you feel safe in your community? And do you think that, that the Democrats in power understand the anxieties that you have? And that's the fundamental question. James, this isn't easy. When John in Orange Park, Florida, uh, I'm afraid it's easy and short, uh, does the action by the Wyoming Republican Party against uh, Liz Cheney prevent her from running at the national level in 2024? So think about this for a second. By vote of, I think it was 26 to 25. The Wyoming Republican Committee declared her not a Republican. So why don't they have a committee that declares me not a heterosexual? How, how can you declare somebody <laughs> not a something? Or have a committee to say, well, I'm not a... a what, what, it's, it's, it's so inherently stupid that people... Are then, right, of course, Liz Cheney, I'm pretty f- sure I'm on firm ground here, is not only a Republican, but, you know, a... a, a Cradle Republican, a deep and profound Republican. National security, abortion, guns, taxes. But 26 people in uh, uh, Wyoming decide that she's not a Republican. It's it's so asinine, but it's a good thank the guy from Florida. (laughs) The question is like, yeah, how do you declare somebody something? that You have the power to declare somebody what they are and what they aren't? And, John, we know the answer. That's because they're nutbags. They're zealous. They're crazy. Uh, James, this is the final one. Michael in Simpsonville, Kentucky, talks about the $65 billion broadband uh, expansion uh, to rural America. You know, don't, he says, this is down your alley, don't talk about $65 billion. Talk about where it's going to help voters in places like Ohio and Georgia, where we can cut down their margins at least. That's what those Democrats, you want to go out there and talk, that's what they ought to be talking about. He is so right. And what they should do is run ads. Like, you know, I don't know, watch these ads. And if you have AT&T, you have T-Mobile, or you got Sprint, and they show you these maps with the coverage. Just show a map of what the coverage is today and what it's going to be three years from now. Right. Okay? Show graphics. This guy's question is right on point. And we're going to talk about $65 billion for rural broadband. How many people are going to have this? How many people are going to be doing homework? How many people, elderly people, are going to be able to have access to, to entertainment or do research that they want to do? Bring it down to human terms. This is a, a superb example of something that is going to be really significant, that is a real problem. And by the way, particularly in the South, there are a lot of black people that live in rural areas. 
if right. if you read the if you pay attention to the to national coverage, they actually call people the urban population, which is yeah. a euphemism. All right, that that's goofy. You know, you went to North Carolina. Your kid works there. Right. You went to college there. You're not oblivious to what's going on. Over half uh, the I, black voters live outside the metropolitan area. Right. Same, and, same and, and in Georgia. We have just become. We've just sort of accepted this this Madison Avenue. New York media idea of what rural America is. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Well, it's a great point, a great question, and keep those questions coming. Well, I can't tell you, the most difficult task we have every week is figuring out which six or seven questions to use because there are a lot more good ones that come in. I I tell you, keep keep them coming. I don't know, like I said, I don't know how wide our audience is. But man, it's deep. They pay attention, and they're they smart. Ask. We don't have they, to deal with you know goofy ass questions, which is <laughs> refreshing. They are smart. Hey, James Carville, you're from a wonderful state. Louisiana has moved right politically, but your senator, senior senator Bill Cassidy, is a principled conservative. By contrast, the junior senator, unfortunately named John Kennedy is a nasty buffoon. Biden has nominated Soleil Omaran for control of the currency. She's a Cornell Law School professor and a former Bush administration treasury official. She was born in Kazakhstan, then part of the Soviet Union, and then initially educated in Moscow. At age 25, she left to come to the United States, the place of opportunity. She has a distinguished academic and professional career working in law firms uh, and academe, and she's become an American citizen. She also believes in tough financial regulation like Elizabeth Warren, so you can support her or oppose her. But in her confirmation, Senator Kennedy chose to ask if she was a communist. Imagine, James, a commie who worked in the Bush Treasury, saying he didn't know whether to address her as professor or comrade. You know, this sleazy guy, he can't plead lack of education. He's a graduate of Vanderbilt, University of Virginia Law School. He fancies himself as a humorous politician, a kind of down-home boy. No, he's just a mean-spirited, bigoted buffoon. James, I love your state. This guy is a stain on the bayou. (laughs) Yeah, so my my was going to be this morning, a a, a friend of mine, I, I can't tell you his name, but his initials are Sidney Blumenthal, Called me and told me that Lauren Bobert challenged Madison Corson to a sprint to see who. And I said, and I, I to said, hire the stupidest thing, yeah, 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 to hire Kyle Rittenhouse. And I said, the stupidest thing that you could ever say, oh, you're bullshitting me. That can't be true. <laughs> of course, it was true. But I, I, I got to defer to, again, this is Sean Hannity in June of 2020 to Donald Trump. What at stake is in this election, and how, as you compare and contrast, what are your top priorities for the second term? Now, just imagine Joe Biden would have said this, all right? This is Trump, and I'm going directly. Well, one of the things that would really be great, you know, the world word experience is still good. I always say that talent is more important than experience. I've always said that, but the word experience is a very important word. It's a very important meaning. I never did this before. I never slept over in Washington. I was in Washington, I think, 17 times, and all of a sudden I'm president of the United States. You know the story. I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue with our first lady, and I say, this is great. 
But I know very many people in Washington, and it wasn't my thing. I was from Manhattan, from New York. Now I know everybody, and I have great people in administration. You make some mistakes, like you have an idol like Bolton, and all he wanted to do is drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to kill people. That's what the fuck you up against. That that level of of sheer stupidity. There's nothing that that if you you it, it again. You're on the most friendly venue you can. You ask the the most friendly question that you probably can in June of an election year. What do you want to do in your second term? That's the level. That that's on level with wanting to have a, a sprint with Madison Cawthorn. Yeah, just one addendum, Madison Cawthorn, for those who don't know it out there, is, uh, is wheelchair-bound. Yes. Uh, so, uh, I think he was a victim of self-inflicted. That's, that's, that's Lauren, Lauren, Lauren Boebert, who is right well, up there with Marjorie Greene, is one of the great, great uh, disgraces in the house. There's a lot. There. Oh, she James, a lot wait a minute. I, wait a minute. Louis Gohmert's threatening to leave Washington. Louis Gohmert's going to run for attorney general in Texas. If people send him a check from Washington, I mean, we check. will lose one of the ten dumbest congressmen. That's that. That's a blow. He's, he's but Paul Gosar's edging ahead of him. Uh, well, that's he and true. Matt Getz, that's so, true. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, I agree. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert got to up their game. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Uh, Louis Gohmert, you know, may just be yesterday. He's so dumb. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and The Lost Debate, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning, and we just hope today you all have the best Thanksgiving possible.